0: Welcome to Delayed Echoes podcast. I am your host, Sheree Lyon. On this podcast, we interview people from different perspectives on neurodiversity. It is my belief that embracing neurodiversity can perhaps point us in the direction of finding the very tools and solutions we need in these modern times. Thank you for tuning in. I am here with um, Saeed Saleem and Renee Robinson, two individuals who are currently living in Toronto, and I met them um, in two different uh, scenarios. Uh, one was with um, Skylark Children, Youth, and Family Services, which, which is a service um, that provides a lot of youth programming um, and, in, um, and support for you know individuals who are living with autism, LGBT youth. And they, I walked in there and I was trying to talk to them about the possibility of hosting a workshop there that is based in play and theater. And immediately they were like, oh, you need to connect with side. And I was like, oh, like, tell me more. And they mentioned just how beautiful and brilliant of a performer that side is. Um, and from my understanding, Saïd Salim is a 25-year-old uh, individual living in Toronto and has the desire and the intention and the passion for performance and for acting. And I'm so grateful that we'll be able to talk to him and, and hear his experience um, on his life and his journey in his 25 years. Um, And I'm also here with Renee Robinson, who is a professor of social work at a pretty reputable college here in Toronto. So we're going to today start first with talking to Syed and getting his perspective as a person living with Asperger's and his interests. Um, And then we're going to move into a conversation with Renee. Um, And then today it will all culminate with um, kind of engaging in a cross cross section between their two experiences, which I believe um, is really great to to see that we have the the link between a social service provider or a person who is is deep in social work um, and who also is speaking with someone who is at the center of this conversation around, around autism. Who is someone who is living with it? You know, we need to, we need to really center these voices. So I'm super excited that we get to have this conversation. So everybody, I'm gonna start. Um, Side, can you tell us about yourself? Um, And, you know, I read a bit of your story that you shared online, and it's packed with immense strength and immense resilience. Yet, I want to start from the beginning. Where were you born?
1: I was born in uh, I was born in Michael Garin Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, September fifteenth, nineteen ninety four. Um, as a kid, I guess I was I guess I was a pretty interesting sort of a kid. But to my I don't have a lot of memories of my elementary school days because. I had this really weird thing as a kid where, where I thought that because this school year was over, I should delete all the memories I, and experiences I had from the year before in preparation for the new one. Not the best approach, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best approach, but but, uh, but yeah. As as a kid, I, I, I was pretty unusual to most people. And the teachers back then, in the in the 90s and the 2000s they didn't have as much of the training and understanding so you thought that i was some sort of a problem kid
0: Mm -hmm. what was it as a child that you were really fond of and you really enjoyed doing
1: as a kid i was very fond of of playing a lot of a lot of video games at a at a very young age, I was introduced to to the Pokemon franchise, but yeah. around the same time, a ban was imposed on me by my by my mother, who now estranged, and, just, and uh, I never got a chance to play any of the newer games or watch the TV show up until I was, was able to start to being on my own uh, around around eighteen years old. And, and the the closest thing that I could ever get to in terms of the anything Pokemon related were were books or the trading cards. That's pretty much it.
0: Pokemon was the it was like hotcakes back then yeah. like everyone wanted Pikachu like all sorts of I remember I bought cards just because everyone was into it but then I found myself not using them because I'm like I, I really wasn't that
1: into I, I still don't <laughs> know how to play the card game nowadays there's like uh, there's more than 800 different types of Pokemon species
0: Yikes! <laughs> whole world Um. so going back to what you're saying in terms of while you're in school you know teachers they didn't understand how you moved through the world do you mind sharing a little bit about that like an ex could you provide maybe an example of what that looked like
1: well i of all my memories is from what little what little is left from what i deleted from my from my memories is uh I feel like one teacher in particular, my second grade teacher was one who was actually the one who didn't seem to understand me at all. I don't really remember a lot of things that I did in second grade, but uh, I remember that this teacher wasn't exactly the best one to get along with me. My, I used to be a little bit of a, I used to be a, a little bit of a destructive kid. I used to get into, a, I used to, I, I remember I used to get into a, some fights with some of the other kids. I used to ha, I used to hide under desks whenever I didn't want to do something. And uh, yeah, I, I think I managed to turn myself around and, uh, in fifth grade and when I was in another, I, I didn't stay in one particular school. In my elementary school career, I remember being in three different schools. It was, I was being transferred around because the programs that were, that were available for me, because was, I'm on the spectrum, I was, I was growing out to them. So that's why I was in three different schools. And my biggest turnaround point for me to to improve my behavior was in fifth grade, because when I got in trouble with another student, uh, one of the educational assistants uh, that was was working with me, he asked me a very big question, why are you so destructive? So I pretty much managed to reform myself by sixth grade.
0: So what was that, how did that feel when, in your body, when they asked you that question, like what, cause not, it's not everyone who turns around when they're asked, when they're asked that question, but it seems that for you, it, you really, it really hit a nerve for you.
1: Yeah, I did. I, I suppose at the, at the time when that question was asked of, when that question was asked of me, it. It did stick with me because it kind of stung. It kind of of stung because at the time I was already in trouble and I just didn't want to have to deal with the embarrassment of always having to be in trouble all the time. So I decided to try and make myself a better person.
0: And what was the first thing that you started to do to... to transform and and revolve
1: it basically started with it, it basically started with the uh, not getting into so much fights with people that was a good step forward to not have to into fights with people I, tr- I tried to be more compliant with the rules almost was to a point where it was incredibly strict for me yeah, I got very uncomfortable around people who broke rules all the time. So this was this this was most evident for me in sixth, in in seventh grade in middle school because I found that a lot of the a lot of the other kids on the bus were very loud, very very obnoxious to me. Yeah, at least in that mind frame and. Most most days, I'd come home completely stressed out over how these people are just.
2: Mhm. Mhm. Mhm.
0: I feel. I feel like there is um, a bit of a disconnect because I remember my education experience and you know those who were in special education, the way that the um. The education system is kind of built. It, it, it's almost like this separate, this this separate school that's happening in tandem with the rest. And I mean, kids can be kids can be cruel. You know, kids can be really mean. And I am, you know, that the layer of of bullying that exists, it <laughs> that's stressful. You know, like that's a, that's a stressful experience. Experience. and it and I think people who are not experienced it they can look at somebody and be like oh like why is this person being so mean or why is this person being so like unable to follow the rules or why it's like there's so much going on you know and yeah. but it's incredible though to hear that in your personal journey that you know this teacher regardless of what it is that you're experiencing it kind of it it Got you to kind of think about your your relationship to yourself and how that then starts to relate to other people mm-hmm. that is like highly self aware <laughs> like that's that's a lot a lot of self awareness. I'm just gonna actually um you know at near the end, I'm gonna also kind of ask Renee too because I'm sure there's a lot that's going um, that's coming up for you um, and to kind of you know flag this as maybe something that we can talk about in the collective conversation um, around education. And if Renee, if you feel like you, there is something that you want to say right now, I invite you to do so.:
2: Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate um, sad um, sharing in terms of his earlier experiences. Um, in terms of um, the spaces that he occupied. And I think it just speaks to that, you know, with every child, with every adolescent that has this very unique experience, I think it's really important for um, their support system to do what they can in order to um, walk with them. It's not necessarily to do things for them It's not necessarily to do things to them, but to do things with them. And I think um, if we had more of positive, more inclusive um, principles in the education arena, in social work arena, in the child and youth care arenas, there will be perhaps a lot more successful stories rather than um, stories where we hear a lot of gaps and barriers in social services.
0: Renee, um, thank you for sharing that reflection and in, in terms of the importance of walking with as opposed to doing two um, and doing and doing four. Mm-hmm. Um, what does side for you? Does something come up when with in that distinction between someone? supporting you in a particular way and how that impacts your capacity to just
1: do what you need to do well i feel like it would be an important i feel like it would be an important thing for people to try and be patient with you especially when, especially when they, when they need when you need them for your for support because some people, I know that some people don't seem to have this kind of patience for things. They just want, they just want to be able to get on as quickly as possible. That doesn't always work, though.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I think our society in general has a hard time with patience. Yes. <laughs> we we're just constantly like things have to be done at this particular time. We need to meet these deadlines. We need to meet these measurements. We need to meet these. And so it it doesn't, you know, I can understand and empathize with this experience of frustration that, you know, people are not able to slow down and, and make considerations and maybe find alternative and creative ways for learning or for applying and growing. Yeah. Delayed Echoes is a short fictional film starring Dora Award winner, Jalen Barnes. For more info, check us out on Instagram at Delayed Echoes or on our website, DelayedEchoesMovie.com. Um, but do you feel like there's anything that you find is perplexing about what you observe of humanity?
1: Okay. Something that I find perplexing about humanity. Yeah. From my lens. Okay. <laughs> um, I I noticed that a lot, I noticed that the, a lot of humanity seems, I guess so, the, way, the way I see it, to, to, I, I know that, I know that I, I know there's a lot of cynical things I could, I, I could say how, how people can really not care what's happening unless it's happening to them. I can say how there's a lot of, the apathy towards the injustices of the world and such and to but at the same time i do see i, I do see a lot of the beauty because if i if i start spiraling down into all all the cynical stuff to the point where i don't see what's good anymore it's just where's the where's the rest in that mm.
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And,
1: and uh I I I I don't really want to steer the conversation towards anything political. To be to be honest, because I know that I have much to say about the situation that 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 has been these past few years in the U.S. But that's not what we're here to talk about.
0: Yes, 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 absolutely. That's not what the conversation is about. We ain't gonna get. ranked. we're not gonna go there today. <laughs> 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 not today. But it's true. It's like yeah, it, we do need to, to keep a balance. And I appreciate you not going down the cynical rabbit hole because it's un, it's it's it spirals down to no end. Um, but it can also spiral up to no end. So very 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 true. What got you into being interested in performing?
1: Of all things, I actually discovered that I could act I actually discovered I had a singing voice in seventh grade and, uh i I was basically uh, seven in grade seven me yeah at the time was on a was on a bus I was very frustrated with all the noisy stuff happening around me, so I decided to burst into song to see if I could get anyone to just stop
0: wow. <laughs> wow. And what happened?
1: They were pretty, they were pretty stunned, but that didn't really lessen the noise any. Right. <laughs> I just, I decided I, because I sounded so good, mind you, I'm no Beyonce, like I always, like I always said, am no Beyonce, but I am easy to listen to.
0: Anyways,
1: <laughs> anyways was, uh, I decided that I would just... Basically, I practiced my singing every day. I every day at recess, I'd be singing ABBA songs on the playgrounds by the portables. When I was in grade seven and grade eight, our school actually had portables. Right. So, so I'd be singing. To, I'd be singing to myself every day. To eat, and that's how I came to know that I had a nice singing voice. So I decided to explore this even. I, I decided to explore my performance aspects a little, little further in my high school career. But my biggest moment for me was when I when I was I was the final act for the show and I sang Dancing Queen. And by the time I got to the, to the second verse, I kid you not. Almost the entire student body that was there in the audience stormed the stage so that they could dance and sing with me.
0: Oh, that must have been so fun.
1: It was a lot of fun. It was exhilarating, actually.
0: (laughs) Yes. So the first time that you and I met in person, we uh, went to see... um, a series of shorts called Color Theory and Delayed Echoes was um, one of the films. But when we were di- when we were walking towards the event at the Turner Media Art Center, um, y- you 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 let us sing Dancing Queen down the street, like down Queen Street. It yes. was on Queen Street.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But it just like clocked that, and yeah, your voice was incredible, and and it, it you know, you have this great, it's like a, it's a very theatrical like voice that has a lot of character to it, you know. So, I support you. Anybody who is looking for performers and are wanting to, you know, please connect this side, um because yes, he- please,
1: I I haven't had any sort of performance related stuff in a long time. This this could, this could benefit me a lot. <laughs>
0: yes. At the end of the show, um, we can talk about, um, you know, the best way that people can contact you for that. Um, okay. So we're going to get a little bit into now your, um, and if, you know, if this feels like, eh, I don't really want to talk about that. That's cool too. Um, but, mm-hmm. When it, I know there's a lot of conversation on, you know, the proper terminology of referring to somebody who is living on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, some people amongst within the autism community, um, you know, have a little bit of, um, they themselves have their own ideas of what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. What way do you personally identify?
1: Usually, when I talk to people about it, I say that I'm on the autism spectrum, and I usually clarify that I have that I have Asperger's syndrome. I I usually clarify that I have Asperger's syndrome wherever I need to. That's that's personally how I identify.
0: Right. Um, and how old were you when you received the diagnosis of, um, of autism and Asperger's?
1: I was actually very, very young. Uh, I think, I think my, I think my, my mother, or my grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother had explained the situation to me at, when I was four.
2: Four. Mm-hmm.
1: I, me being me, I, me being me, I, I didn't quite completely understand, but I just accepted it as a, as a fact.
0: And was it from there that then you're,
1: you got placed in special education? I believe I believe so. Uh, I actually, yeah. re- I think I did receive special education by the time I was in grade Either grade three or grade 4
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And your your personal account of your story online, which is you know, um, for readers and for listeners, it's a very um, it's very it's a very challenging story. It is. There is, um, you explained and expressed abuse from uh, family members, at the loss of your older sister, and before that, her struggle with mental illness. Mm-hmm. And when I read your account, um, it was very hard to read. And I know that you want to share aspects of that story today, but in that story, you began with the good times. Of
2: high school, mm-hmm.
0: can you can you bring us there to your time of that excitement and that that time of, of that things were really flowing well for you?
1: I was a pretty happy kid way back in 2008. Into, you know, I I just finished uh, graduating from middle school, going into high school. Uh, I had a pretty nice summer with my with my maternal grandmother, who I called ganna And uh, I I remember we saw them in the first Ma and Mia movie together. She she was nice enough to get me a copy of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and and. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I remember that uh, when I started high school I did well enough in my in my academics to actually make the honor roll. Mm-hmm. That was those were pretty much my those were pretty much my yeah, best best moments before before winter of 2008 set in. And what was winter
0: 2008?
1: Winter 2008 and, uh December 23rd especially, it was a time when everything started to go downhill because it, it was the holidays as as one would typically expect. And uh, my Giana was, was a lot sicker than she usually was. And I was the one at home always taking care of her while my estranged mother and my late sister went out to do Christmas shopping and, to, and my late sister could actually see boyfriend of first. right and, and uh i remember how my how my Gana how my gana had told me that because i was so such a good person for taking care of her that i would that that god would reward me one day mm. yeah. what was
0: your ghana like she
1: was a very she was a very yeah she was a very bubbly sort of personal personality yeah she had a very she had a very funny sense of humor, right? And she was always, although she, we only really ever played uh, this playing card game. We 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 played we played cards very often. She was always very good at playing crazy eights and uh, this one variant of bingo that uses playing cards. Yeah, and I I got along a lot better with her than I ever did with my own mother. In my opinion,
2: mm-hmm.
1: well, Uh that night on December twenty third, we were all getting ready to get her sleep when suddenly she screams out my name, "Sai!" and she dropped to the floor in her in her bedroom, tangled up in her bed sheets. So we had paramedics come in, and we had to have paramedics come in, and they informed us that. My gana had had a heart attack and she already died before she even hit the floor.
2: Mm.
1: That was a pretty intense moment for me because, at the time I didn't cry, but I was very stunned. I was, of course I I was very stunned, but at the time I was stunned at myself for not having cried the way my mother and my sister had, because that so uh, that should have been a typical reaction. I didn't realize that shock was also a possible reaction.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Cause that that must that was a sudden, such a sudden experience. And also at that young age to have to navigate and understand that moment, that's that's overwhelming. Mm. That's so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So your your Ghana, who was this beautiful, bubbly, funny woman, who you had a great relationship with, passed away. In your account you you share that just that things got worse from that from
2: then
1: on. Yeah. Ever since, ever since then, she she had gone. My mother had started getting a lot more distant with me. Yet, I I won't. Especially around the time, especially after the, especially after the funeral, in a few years afterward, she started getting more and more distant with me and a lot more dismissive of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't be in the same room without without being quickly asked to go somewhere else and leave her alone.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you and your mom ever have like a conversation about how hard it was to lose your gun in that
1: way? I I don't remember if we ever did have a conversation, but at this point, I at this point I was just. I I was pretty much, I was pretty much in church because she just kept pushing me away. (laughs) She kept pushing me away and she didn't really want to have to deal with me. And that, that that really affected me a lot. When I tried talking to her about how it made me feel, she thought I was overreacting, that I was exaggerating things.
2: Mm. She
0: was minimizing and deflecting. What you're sharing with her, and
1: the worst, the the worst, the worst part of my experiences with her pretty much started. it was at the, it was at that point when my, when my late sisters started, especially after my grandmother, after my grandma died, my sister started developing multiple personalities. It got to such a point where it was difficult to know who I was talking to anymore. Cause there's one character that she, that she, that she created. And his name was Danny. And this particular character was supposed to be like a, a manifestation of a father figure that my sister left because my my mother had taken custody away from my dad from us had taken custody custody away from my, my dad when I was when I was, was eleven years old. Then. And ever since, ever since that, and I guess that because my, my, my sister, my, my mother had it so deeply convinced that my dad was a bad person and and, uh, she created this father figure as a way to try and make sense of the world through a paternal lens, I guess, but uh, uh, I, this particular. Their character was also a pretty domineering kind of a one when we had to I had to be careful with my words because if I said the wrong thing to the wrong person, again nah. yeah I when I, when I was talking with her, I would only see my sister. I never saw anyone else, but these personalities would always my sister believed my, that these personalities would speak through her though she were a psychopomp. If, okay
0: yeah yeah for the sinners psychopomps are individuals who um are capable of talking to the dead um or or people who have passed
2: on
1: This character wasn't exactly somebody who who passed on she she believed that they had this deep spiritual psychic connection where in which they could actually talk through her right but but yeah, uh, on one such summer in the in the summer of two thousand nine, uh, because I was being treated so so poorly by my by my late sister at the time and my and my estranged mother, I right, wanted to write my grievances out on a piece of green construction paper, saying how it wasn't fair the way they were treating me. I even cited the first article of the Universal Declaration of human rights reads that all human beings are born free and are equal in dignity and rights they are endowed with reason reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood uh, my sister's reading abilities were not as great as mine so when she read the note she she had this thing where she read everything one word at a time and because of this reading style she thought that I was being sarcastic and snobbish and whatever. And so she tore up the note, and I was beaten.
0: Mm.
1: Nah. I never came forward to the authorities about that because I was, because my mother threatened my life. Right.
0: So at this time, were you, were you in school?
1: Um, I, I was in school for grade nine and grade 10. This was going into my you know, t- t- tenth grade, but uh, by the time I started eleventh grade, my mother started attacking my attendance. We had a dog at home, but my mother never knew how to actually care for the dog properly, the same way that I would. And uh, to her, the, the only best solution to keep the dog in check was to have the dog was to have the dog constantly chained to me around my waist. And so I I we I used to have a metal leash chain. And it was always around my waist, and the dog would always pull. Mm. And and, uh, the dog also seemed to have a pretty bad case of separation anxiety. We couldn't leave her in the house alone without having her cause a lot of noise, make a mess.
0: Right. So I just want to take a moment, Side, um, and just, just reflect to you. Um, and also for any of the listeners who experience, you know, these levels of 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 reality that are highly challenging and very difficult. Um, and I can imagine at that time, like there was just a like, a huge sense of isolation and and
2: vulnerability. What was that, Renee? Sorry, vulnerability. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Not at all, not at all. This is we're in a conversation together. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm hoping too that people who are listening, who will be listening to this, whether you're a parent, listen to this, um, and you, you yourself might see yourself in maybe perhaps Sides Estranged Mother or you are an individual who is living more on sides perspective or a sibling or what have you I really hope that this is a opportunity to to pause and to ref- and to reflect and, and really kind of see how our interactions can play out how grieving when when we don't have the room to grieve in our communities um, how that can how that can create um, difficulty because we don't have these spaces. We don't have these spaces to – we don't have the tools to be able to talk to each other about how we are truly feeling, and all of that starts to build up and and then it ends up coming out in very ugly and negative ways. And I just want to to say, side that you your strength throughout that time, and it seemed as if your imagination was also a, was a tool that you used to help you to keep to keep you going. And I would love for you to share that. Um, how? And also, I'm also recognize that Renee unmuted her mic, and and you probably would like to say something. So I'm just going to turn it over to
2: to you, Renee. No, 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 no. I just um no it wasn't purposely it was just um to really acknowledge and as you've been doing throughout the whole conversation sheree so thank you um in terms of really um genuinely and authentically acknowledging um side's um story and and thanking him for um really like resurfacing these things cuz this is over 10 years right this is over 10 years and i'm not quite sure how long um these challenging times lasted or even even how these relationships how they formed over time but you know just kind of retelling your story and i know that you you did it in this documentary but even retelling the story, me as a stranger, Danielle as a stranger who you've never met before, you've had no prior relationship with. So I just really want to thank you for taking this time and kind of you know resurfacing these, these themes for you um, because it's, it, it's very evident that it was extremely hard for you. Um, and I'm, I'm labeling it with my kind of social work hat on as how i see it or how i assess it as neglect as abuse and um as really as really complex times for you but the beauty of it side and i know that you you it's your life you lived it but you got through it mm-hmm. you got through it and how i'm amazed at your resiliency and your um um, just your way of being now and how you you appear to that you came on the on the other side of things right so I, I genuinely want to say thank you because I'm not going to fake and say oh, yeah mm-hmm. I, I, I know what you're feeling or I can just imagine no I cannot imagine but I just want to mm-hmm. acknowledge and say thank you
1: yeah a lot of my a lot of my challenges was pretty much started from when i was in grade 11 up until the, up until the year 20, 2012 specifically october fifteenth 2012 because that was, was during the summer of 2012 we'd become homeless and, and uh, the things that we had the things that we resorted to doing to to have us get by were not the most ideal because my mother never really wanted to actually take initiative and to find a proper home for us, to find a better source of income for us. She just wanted to live off of welfare and she never actually made the effort to get us on ODSP yet and when we were homeless, she made it a personal code with her with us, as not to tell anyone else that we were homeless. So I remember one day. Well, another thing that I was also made to do was she'd have me go into grocery stores to try and steal food for us. And uh, I I understand that that in itself is not something you should, you should do. I know that our circumstances were. What they were, but even so uh, speaking from my experiences, she was also a pretty terrible tactician, and she was never thankful for the stuff I got. She never understood the concept of supply and demand because it was whenever she would ask me to get a specific sandwich or wrap or whatever, and I'd go there and you know, I'd see that the i see that it was not there, and she just. She just couldn't understand why I couldn't get that because it wasn't, she said it was there when I was there. Supply and demand doesn't always have the things you want at the time you want them. Yeah. But, but yeah, she was not, she, she, every time I'd get her, her so, something else, she, she thought it was some poor excuse. She, she'd come up with all these excuses saying that I was upset with her about something that happened prior in the day and I was doing this to be petty with her anyways uh there was that, and she was also pretty bad sort of a tactician. She thought that that she thought I should just stay to stick to one location. people aren't always stupid; they will think <laughs> it out, and there is surveillance mm-hmm. aren't stupid and uh continuing on continuing on with what i said about twenty about the year twenty twelve the I remember one day when I was, was on my way home, on my way to, yeah, back to her, I, my, some of my high school friends were driving, driving in, the, in their car down to Road because I was walking from Scarborough Center. And when they saw me, they picked me up and I went to, we went to a, a, a spot so I could tell them what was going on because they hadn't heard from me from, from the way my mother was making me stay home from school. But she was making me lie to the teachers about my attendance, saying something was something wrong with my stomach, something they didn't agree. And when that lie wore thin, she resorted to telling me, making me tell them that she under, that she recently underwent surgery when nothing even happened. But yeah, I broke my mother's code about not telling people that we were homeless. I really wanted somebody to help me because she wasn't doing anything. and. And uh, she managed to bring it out to me through mental duress that I told somebody that we were homeless. And so she thought that I was broken and that I needed to be fixed and that my friends were trying to corrupt me. So her her appropriate... The reaction she decided to do was that she tried to admit me into into the Rouge Valley Mental Health Institution, lying to the doctor saying that I was violent and unruly, she said, because I turned 18 years old at the time, that means that that I, that I couldn't do whatever I wanted, even though I knew that the government technically says I could.
0: Mm. So when I, when I was reading your story and it just, it, it, it made me think about just to add a little layer of, of humor here um, of, of, you know, when your friends, they, you're, they come through for you, you know, they're really trying to come through for you. And they're just like, Hey bro, where have you been for like, you know, the past, at this point, how long have they had, how long have they not seen you?
1: They, they hadn't really seen me much through most of grade 11 and all of grade 12.
0: Okay. So like, we're looking at like a year, year and a half, almost two years. You know, so
1: you're I missed a year and a half of my, of my education. Right. I really cared about my education. I wanted to get back into things, but to the constant attacks on my attendance, mm-hmm. I I couldn't tell her that I tried telling her that what she was doing wasn't fair or when she would ask me to constantly, she would ask me to stay home. If I, if I still put up a, if I still put up more resistance, she would threaten to pull rank on me and make me stay home anyway. And that was very often the case. So I tried writing a contract with her saying that she couldn't do this to me anymore. And if she tried, I would still go anyway, despite what she said. She blatantly disregarded that contract. Mm-hmm.
0: So were your friends able to help you? Or wh- how, what was what was the turning point?
1: The turning point was on October 15, 2012, after... I had been admitted to Rouge Valley Mental Health. Mm-hmm. I was only there for the three days, for the three-day tri- three trial period that they usually do to see if I'm actually eligible or... If, I don't know if eligible is the right word to say if, I am a, good enough, if I'm a candidate enough to actually have to stay there.
0: Was it that she said that you were experiencing psychosis? So what, was it like a psychosis program?
1: i don't know what it was all, okay. I knew, all I knew was that she said that I was corrupted that I was being corrupted that i was she said that I was broken and needed to be fixed, and she said that mm. and she said that she wanted to have me medicated mm. the doctor saw no reason to medicate me thank god mm-hmm. I, at the time I, at the time when it, with, with, when this was happening I didn't understand it, but when I, on that on that fateful day of October 15th the this was at a time when an acquaintance of that my mother knew at the time she just in a hypocritical move she told she decided to tell this person that we were homeless and that we needed help and so this, this acquaintance allowed us to, to stay with her at her place on the condition that my mother actually find something to do and, and, and try and find us a proper home to live but Really, my mother actually just wanted to leech off of her. And that mm. when my when this acquaintance and so it was was trying to my strange mother had no that my strange mother my strange mother knew. Um, she. My mother got very paranoid about her. She had this, this delusion in her head that this person was gossiping about her, that the that this acquaintance was speaking condescendingly to her, and so it caused her to get get into an argument with this acquaintance. And she tried to storm out of the she tried to storm out of the place because she, my mother wasn't get wasn't really getting her way. Yeah. She wanted me and my, she wanted my late sister and I to come with her. But I, I keep in mind, I had just gotten out of a mental health institution and the doctor suggested I needed a calm and stable environment and a consistent routine. And this wasn't any of those things. So I, I didn't want to have to go back into Rouge Valley again for one thing. And for another thing, I had a bad feeling that if I did go with my mother, we would probably ha- we probably would have been dead by the coming winter, and I wasn't I was not about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So this acquaintance had asked what my late sister and I wanted to do since we were old enough at the time. My sister was nineteen, and I was eighteen. Nah, my sis- my sister very readily chose to go with my mother, but I fearing that everything that we'd been through throughout the entire summer. I made the t- very tough decision to say, no, I don't want to go with you. At the time, it was, I said that I would need to fix myself up and then I'll come back to fix you. But then I re- after I realized the things that I did, there was, it was all that. So my mother pretty much left me with the acquaintances, taking everything I had, Leaving only the clothes on my back, okay, as 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 my sole possessions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The the acquaintance didn't have legal means to keep that didn't have legal means to keep me in her home. So when the police were brought into her home, the police asked me if I knew anybody else that I could stay with. At the time, I didn't say anything about my father because my mother had it so deeply instilled in my mind that my father wasn't a person I should be coming back to. Right. So I was taken to the YMCA men's shelter near Spadina Queen. And, and uh, after my first week there, I tried call, contacting my mother to see if I could get any sort of IDs he's, he's, uh, so that I could stay at the shelter. And mm-hmm. on the second day of my calling her, she told me that i should hang up the phone and never call her again oh my gosh yeah and in that time i was pretty much replaying every every event that had happened to me and why it happened the way it did i replayed i remember a lot a lot of times in my in my younger in my in my childhood years in my younger adolescence I said when I would be mad at my mother, I'd say when, when I turn 18 years old, I will leave you. I will be on my own, and I will leave you. And yeah. to my surprise, that actually happened. Right. And I replayed the part where or, or I where she had admitted me to Rouge Valley Mental Health. And I, I at the time I I was piecing together why she wanted to medicate me, and then that's when the realization hit me she wanted to medicate me so that she could control me mm. use the psychotic medications as a means of control mm. and when i realized that all the respect all the love that i once had for her immediately died right right she may not have been able to medicate me but to mm. she's defeated in medicating my sister and the neighbors many of the neighbors, many of the people in the local area where she was, when they saw how my sister was, from what they told me, she'd pretty much become zombified she, she pretty much succeeded in zombifying my sister to the point of almost losing her free will. Mm. And my sister had made two attempts to try and run away from her. The first time she managed to get away she was she was found downtown in the path in, in the path underground walkway network, but the second time she tried to run away, she never returned alive
0: so your sister had had passed on
1: yes so she was found dead in a creek off the highway e in Whitby. <sighs>
0: I, at this moment, I'm just, you know, overwhelmed with the layers of, of trauma that you had to go through, that your sister had to, had to go through and, and your family, you know, and again, you're, when we speak with you and we talk with you and when, when we interact, you're, you're... Your resilience and your and your strength shows so so clearly, you know, and 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 it goes to this fact that we never know what people are going through. Yeah. We never do.
1: At the time when my when my sister had passed on, I was already reunited with my dad. And my dad was asking me to try and find her. He was he was asking me and my and my brothers, my older brother, my younger brother, to try and find her, but. At the time, I was still doing a lot of personal healing, considering the trauma my sister had put me through. It took me a while to realize that she, too, was suffering as badly. I didn't see the bigger picture until that point, and when I was finally ready to address it, make peace with myself, and try and reconnect with my sister, I was already too late. And... And, uh... I did ask the investigator on the case to let me know when her funeral would be, but he never did. My mother prevented me from going. And uh, my sister was already cremated without me. And I don't have, I, I tried calling the funeral home that, that did her, that, that that held her services, that did, did the paperwork for the cremation. And they told me that because I wasn't there, they had this policy where because I wasn't there, or because I wasn't there, or they couldn't divulge that information to me.
0: To let you know where her body was laid to rest. Yes. Right.
1: So, uh, all the information I do have is on her death certificate, which I ordered this month. And then that's all I know. So, to best remember her, to, to have a chance to say goodbye to her, I did my own little ceremony at home. I Mm-hmm. I went to a value village. I got a pink scarf. I got some. I got a lighter and a metal bowl, and uh, I I took the I took the scarf. I put it into the bowl and I burned. Hmm. Oh. It well,
0: yeah. I it
1: was it was my way of of actually doing some kind of a spiritual cremation. I I thought that if I yes. could burn the scarf, if I could send it off to her in the afterlife, so that she could wear it.
0: Yes. And that is so that is so powerful that your intuition led you to do your own your own ceremony to mark that and to show her that on the other side that you that you are that your love for her still is there and that you still think of her and that you wish her wish her well
1: yeah it was it was pretty tough because whenever I go to whenever I go to far places. Whenever I would experience big, fun things, I would have a moment to th- think of her thinking, if only I could just show her the world as I've seen it now. As, how I would, how I, I would, I, for the times that I went to Quebec City, to Montreal, to Vancouver, to Ottawa, I had wished that she would have been there with me so that she would actually see these places, meet all these people that I met.
0: In one of the, um, one of the tools that we use in, uh, this really lovely practice called interplay is, um, a, it's called a Bebo and it's a breathe in and a breathe out. And it can be with like a sigh or a, mmm or a, um, or a, or a roar, you know, if you really get the times where you're just like, ah, you know? Um, and I just kind of want to take a moment to just do like a Bebo sigh, you know, just breathe in, breathe out. So Bebo, (sighs) if anyone is going through something similar to what you have gone through, what is a message that you would give them?
1: Honestly, whatever you're going through, your experience is valid. I cannot stress this enough. Your experience is valid. Don't let your abusers minimize, gaslight, or dismiss you when you call them out. And your experience is valid, and everything that you live—everything that you live through—is exactly as you lived through it, exactly as you've seen it. You're not crazy. You're not exaggerating. This is exactly as you've lived it, mm-hmm. and you do have the power to change it for the better. That's the best thing I can say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I know that. I know that. I, I've seen. I've also witnessed. I've also witnessed some friends going through abuse with their going through a lot of abuse with their romantic partners. And I've seen how they go through the motions and saying, "Well, maybe they'll be better next time. Maybe they'll be better next time. Maybe they'll understand me this time." No. It it's just a vicious cycle that allows these abusers to continue to do what, the things that they do. The ball is in your court to decide whether or not you actually want it to stop for for good. If it if this is not if it if it's going to be if it's going to put you through a lot of stress. And, physically, emotionally, psychologically, you need to let these people go. There, there are options out there that can at least help you through some steps that you can take, but your experience is valid first and foremost.
0: Side, so I give it up to you. I give it up to you for being so candid with your your experience and, and for that message of, validating people's experiences, you know, I, there was something that you mentioned in our pre-talk um, between you, myself and Renee, and it was around, you know, you, you mentioned that people who are on the autism spectrum are seen as broken and are not broken. Do you mind sharing more about, about that sentiment? Cause it was so, it was so brilliant the way that you had said it.
1: So yeah, I, it's, been, it's been the common misconception that people on the spectrum are seen as broken or needed to be fixed. This is, especially, this is especially true when it comes to movements like Autism Speaks or when it comes to people who are anti-vaxxers who think that if they get their children vaccinated, then there's the chance they might get autism. Okay. Assuming I know that medical science has a lot to prove against that, but in this hypothetical thing, assuming that your kid did become diagnosed with autism, if they were found to be on the spectrum, how you met, how these people deal with that is just bizarre to me because. They they think that their child is doomed to be the odd is doomed to be an oddball doomed to be yeah a social outcast and some doomed to be broken. We're not we're not broken. We're not a bad thing that you should be afraid of. Hmm. And for for you to make that for people to make that assumption to make that to make that to prejudice and that discrimination is just it's just bizarre to me. Yeah. Again, uh, when, the way that the, way the, the Autism Speaks movement works, I, my mother used to, my strange mother used to have, be with that movement. and I, I had no idea what that was, but I realize now that that particular movement seems to want to work towards finding a cure for autism. And not everybody wants to be cured, not everybody wants to be fixed and it's important to understand and respect that there are people that that uh, we're not broken we don't need to be fixed yeah. sure we are we're we are unique we may not do things in the conventional neurotypical way, but who says that we should Yes Renee
2: just again in terms of i appreciate um side in terms of um really speaking from first-person experience because within my circle it's that we are speaking on their behalf a lot of times we are speaking on behalf of the service user and again it's just really nice um to finally hear um one of the few cases where it's just like we are hearing from first person first-hand experience as someone who identifies on the spectrum who's had these experiences and then can, can then then can come to this some then can come to this um, in, insight, this really deep deep insight, and in saying I am not broken. You know, we don't need to be fixed. We are as good as our lived experience, and we are even more than that. More than what you can see. More than what you can feel. Um, and so, I again, I just, I just wanted to interject that in terms of just like this really deep acknowledgement and appreciation for him sharing this insight on this forum.
0: Yes, yes, and that actually brings us to the perfect time for us to transition the conversation um, and to bring some to spend some time to speak with you, Renee. And, you know, that's exactly what was, that I was gonna share is that oftentimes um, services that are provided for uh, neurodivergent people are determined by narratives that are predicated on individuals needing to be fixed or just, because they are disabled. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is rare for people receiving these services to be spoken, to, and to be given a chance to provide feedback to individuals working within the system or yeah. who are working on the side of being service providers, I am very grateful to have the two of you be in conversation with each other and to listen to each other's stories um, and lived experiences. Renee Robinson is a professor at a local college here in Toronto and has also worked as a frontline worker working with children and youth on the autism spectrum as well as providing mental health services. Renee, welcome, we've heard your voice um, with your, your echoing and, and your appreciation for Sides telling of his, of his lived experience. And I wanted to start with asking you, what are the life experiences that have
2: brought you to this point of your life and work? Um, I think ever since I was young, uh, I would say around, um, twelve or thirteen. I think when as I was entering, um, high school, I've always felt this niche to to support people. Um, I've always been this have this personality of being social, having, um, being well liked, um, just being kind of not part of this group or that group but just kind of getting along with just a wide range of persons around mm. me <laughs> and even you know we have a large family and um in terms of my younger cousins or even within even my own um personal circle of my nephew just really taking on the role of just supporting people right that's always been part of my dna um and so as i was entering um, grade 11, 12, I was, okay, what do I do? Do I go to nursing? Do I go to um, social work? Do I go to teaching? And then this, the child and youth care, sorry, child and youth worker program kind of popped on me when I was going through these college applications. And um, so I applied and I started from there in uh, 2002. Um, went to college for three years, and then um, graduated in 2005, took a year off, received my BA at Ryerson in the Child and Youth Care Practitioner Program, and then um, worked in the field um, in various settings um, in supporting young people, specifically with mental health problems, um, in areas of family conflict. Um, in areas of, um, um, again, mental health, um, academia, perhaps support as well, Um, transitioning, housing. Um, And then I took a little break and I decided to go back to school because I felt that I needed to widen out in terms of the population that I want that I wanted to serve, um, obviously as a child and youth worker, our scope of practice it really um, focuses in on um, youth primarily. Um, and so I said, okay, let me go and get my um, social work degree um, because I again I, I felt an interest in the geriatric population. Mm-hmm. And so I went to get my MSW um, and graduated in two thousand and sixteen.
0: And during your field work,
2: um,
0: what was your, what was your experience as a, as a,
2: as a, as a frontline worker? There were, it was, you know, frontline work. First off, it is, it is probably one of the toughest jobs, but is, it is extremely rewarding. Very, very rewarding. So a lot of my work experience is in residential treatment homes and so um, these young people, they come into our homes for a period of time. Sometimes it's up to two years. Sometimes it could be as minimum as six months, depending on their on their treatment plan and their family goals. And, um, you know, frontline workers, we are essentially, you know, a replacement of their parents. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean that in terms of we, we have this opportunity to be in their space on a daily basis so when when they wake up we're there when you know they eat their breakfast we're there when they come home from school um, we're there um, when they go to bed we're there and so you know frontline work a, a lot of people you know the general population perhaps don't, doesn't realize the intricate the intricate experiences that we have with young people it can be it can be very challenging. It can be very, very challenging, but also um, rewarding at the same time.
0: Who was the population that would come through the, resident, the residential um, buildings so, that you were working in?
2: Yeah, so the, the average age was, or the, the age range, I should say, was um, between um, 13 to 17. Uh, there'd be the odd time where we would have uh, a 12-year-old um, come in. Um, I could I could just remember a select few of that young, yeah. but um, most times it would be 14, 15, 16. Um, and then we would try, our, our goal was to try to have them, um, excuse this language, but be discharged or to leave the program um, and return back home or to another program that could support them in terms of transition them to the adult system. Right. Yeah.
0: And were these individuals like um, folks who um, you know struggled with mental illness or mental health issues, or was it what were the what were the what were the the, the labels that these individuals were being given?
2: yeah so the population was was ranged it really it really did so um, we would have folks come in that again experience some um, mental illness um, issues um, such as depression um, anxiety. perhaps they were in in a hospital setting and they and the parents felt that they couldn't manage you know the residual um, the residual emotions from the hospital. So a lot of parents be like, you know what, I I just can't manage this anymore. I need to send him, her, or they to a group home, basically. Um, And so we would monitor in terms of their level of psychosis or their level of um, treatment. Um, We would have um, youth who identify on the spectrum um, enter our program, Um, kids who, who would have attendance difficulties at school, It was a it was a large range. A large range, yeah, wide range. Right, right.
0: And you know, one of we've we've spoken for for a bit now, Um, and you've, I think, what has always kind of come up, um, but that you know, you've kind of really been thinking and sitting with how the how currently. the structures of social work are working and where there needs to be some support or perhaps some shifting. Mm -hmm. What are the areas that you feel need to be shifted right now?